Well, you'll remember we're looking at the songs that are in the uh, accounts of Jesus' nativity uh, in Luke's gospel. Uh, We looked at uh, Mary's song, uh, the Magnificat, uh, last week. And we'll come uh, today to Zechariah's song, which is called the Benedictus. And um, before we get there, I want to give you a little bit of setting. You might call this the big picture of what was going on in Israel uh, at the time of these events. The uh, Annunciation of of Gabriel to Mary and then uh, to uh, Zechariah. Um, and in a, in a word, everything in Israel was a mess at that time. Israel was a mess. Um, and you see that because, and I give you several things, the Romans ruled them at that time, and they took that as a bad sign uh, uh, for themselves spiritually as well as the obvious. Uh, Satan is afflicting them in various ways through the seed of the serpent. God had not been speaking to them for uh, hundreds of years, about 400 years since Malachi. Uh, There had been a rebellion against the Romans under the Maccabees uh, years before this time, but it had been crushed by the Romans, and that had shaken them because many thought that the Maccabean rebellions would would liberate them from Rome. There were um, reform movements in Israel at the time uh, under the Essenes and the Pharisees, but that was splintering the nation. So they're ruled, they're afflicted, uh, God is silent to them, they're shaken uh, by the crushing of the Maccabean rebellion, They're splintered by the various movements. And yet, there were promises that had been given to them, and they remembered the promises. And so they had hope, but it seems so slow. Like Christmas will seem in about three weeks, and you thinking about, you kids uh, will be thinking about Christmas again, and it'll seem so slow in coming. So, rightly, we could say, Uh, that Israel was in a period of darkness, and at the very end of the passage I'm going to read, uh, it says that today. That's the big picture. Near term, what's going on here? Well, uh, in the very early part of Luke 1, in verses 5 and following, uh, Gabriel had gone to Zechariah when he was serving in the Holy of Holies and had confronted him and said, Elizabeth, your barren wife is going to have a child, John the Baptist. He doubted that and was made mute until the child, the day of the child's circumcision. And we read this account of the circumcision as well as the birth and the naming. Um, It's a very, at one point in our reading today, the question is asked, what then will this child be? And this text, of course, is going to answer that question. Let's pray and we'll read about it. Lord our God, help us to understand you and your ways with your people. Uh, We realize that your word, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, um, is the only infallible rule of faith and practice, and yet it's not 
In an ultimate sense, your word we want to know, it's you we want to know. And so I pray you will reveal yourself to us in the reading and proclaiming of your word. And you'll use a wretchedly sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we take it up. I want to begin in verse 57 about the birth of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give, knowledge of, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but this is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. As I said, it's, it's difficult for us to understand, to appreciate what was going on in Israel at that time. We live in a day and an era of instant communication. Um, uh, we have smartphones and regular phones and TV and smart TV and internet and text and Twitter and Facebook and all those sorts of things. But of course, it's not always been that way. When the first pioneer missionaries went out to India and Persia and the South Pacific and other places, it took months for letters to go one way and months for letters to go the other way. More recently... Um, uh, I have uh, some insight into that from uh, a letter that Sally's uh, father 
I guess say father-to-be. She wasn't born yet. It's uh, dated October 1944. He was in a German prison camp in Zagen, uh, Poland. It's in Poland today. And he says this, Send food in all parcels with few necessary clothes, dehydrated goods, powdered, powders, dried stuff, seasonings are the thing. If you only knew how important this is, don't feel that the package is too dry. It's a godsend. And, of course, the letter would have to go through German censors and would take a long, long time. I also want to read a paragraph from a book called Sage. Um, Jerry Sage was uh, uh, in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA, and he was in the same prison camp that Sally's dad was in. If uh, you remember the old uh, movie, um, The Great Escape, it was that prison camp, Stalag Lu III in Zagan, Poland. And uh, Jerry Sage says something very similar. Listen to this, because I'm going to come back to something related to this later in the message. He's talking about life in the camp. He said, another officer, R.E. Williams, did a superb job of supervising the issue of parcels from home. That's what Sally's dad was writing about, parcels from home. When the Germans opened these parcels and looked in them, Williams would stand by to see what items were, that items were not mislaid or destroyed. Captain Carmichael had a similar job. As the mail officer, he received our mail in bulk from the German censors and then sorted it and handed it on to the block mailman to deliver. Great day. Mail from home was one of the best of all morale boosters. Great day. Mail from home was one of the best morale boosters. What is it that we have today in this text? It's mail from home. To people that are in captivity, to people that are in darkness, to people that are struggling to have hope, um, the situation between Israel and God was even worse than between Jerry Sage and Ellie Kogan and their people back home. We have the completed Bible. We have the Holy Spirit given us to guide us into the truth and to understanding the Bible. We as believers and those who are experiencing the priesthood of all believers can pray to God whenever we will pray to God. Back then, they did not have the same privileges. And of course, God does not text Facebook, Twitter, or email. But God sent them new revelation in John. And then he sent them new revelation in Jesus. (laughs) It was like mail call in a German prison camp. Like receiving a parcel from home with goodies that give hope. And so what can we learn from this song that Zechariah sang when he was unmuted, so to speak? Well, the first thing he does is give thanks to God uh, for Jesus the Messiah in verses 67, 68, 69, and 70. Um, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now we, in this verse 68, normally we think that, well, God's the one that does the blessing, right? So why is he saying, blessed be God? Uh, and, it, and it's set up in verse uh, 64, uh, something 
and he spoke blessing God. Well, in this uh, context, I think to bless is to give thanks. He is introducing a thanksgiving. Uh, he's just had a child in his old age. Uh, they, you might say he and a, a, a Elizabeth had a fertility problem. Uh, she says, the text says she was barren, uh, but God heard their prayers. God decided to use them in his grand plan. Uh, and, and he's being told that deliverance will come. And that's all good news for, for, for Zechariah, right? It's all good news. I'm going to be a dad. Uh, this boy is going to prepare the way for the Messiah, uh, which is a pretty significant place in the plan of God. Uh, none of us will have that significant place, I'm sure. And he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, if he, I want to stop there because you might be, read that. You say, well, if he's the God of Israel, can he be my God? Well, he is the only God, but he is not the God of Israel only. We find in the New Testament in Galatians 3 at verse 7, uh, God saying, all who are of faith are children of Abraham. They took physical descent to be the main thing, but God says that spiritual descent is the main thing, that if you're of the faith of Abraham, you're a part of the Israel of God. And God will be your God. God will be your God if you will put your faith and, and hope and trust in Him. If you haven't already done that, I pray that you will. I hope that you will. I encourage you to that. And he is thanking God because God will send Jesus. That's in the middle of verse 68 all through the rest of this first paragraph. Now, look, notice carefully in verse 68, he has visited. That sounds past tense. He has visited and has redeemed and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Why is he saying this that way? Well, when you interpret the Bible, one of the things you've got to deal with is what are called the prophetic perfect tenses or the prophetic past tenses. Uh, these are past tense, but the prophet is saying it as if it is reality and has already happened. He has that much faith. He believes that it's going to happen. And he said he has visited, has redeemed, has raised up, or, or different nuances of the same message. He has visited his people. So what is happening now? God is visiting his people. Uh, and it's a visit that has effect, a visit that is transformative, a visit that is powerful or helpful or saving. Kind of like a rich uncle showing up at Christmas. Things change. Things happen. That's the kind of visit it is. And he has redeemed his people from their bondage. Their bondage to sin. Their bondage to death. I think by implication their political bondage. They, they don't know when he's going to deliver them from Rome. But they, I think, know they will ultimately be delivered from all political powers and oppressors. God's going to redeem them. He's going to take them out of their bondage. That's what he did when he brought his people out of Israel, out of Egypt. That's what he did. And that, he will do that again. Raise up a horn of salvation for them in the house of David. What is a horn of salvation? That's strange language to us. Sally and I were in uh, the Lamar Valley in, in Yellowstone um, a few months back. And uh, we saw an elk herd. And uh, I don't know. 20, 25 cows, uh, one bull, one big bull, one small bull. <laughs> the big bull and the small bull didn't get along. <laughs> uh, 
And the one, the big one, had an enormous rack that he used to scare off the small one. Because a horn, you see, is a symbol of power. A symbol of power. A, a power that can make things different and change and defeat enemies. Uh, he's raised up a horn of salvation for them in the house of his servant David. And of course, Jesus came from the house and the lineage of David. That's emphasized uh, in, in uh, these uh, accounts of the advent. And so he's saying, look, he's raised up Jesus. He's the horn of salvation. He's the one with the power. He's the one that will defeat Satan and sin and the grave. He will win. He has, he is the horn of salvation. It's a thanksgiving for all of that. And then in verses 71 to 75, he begins to describe the great salvation of the Messiah. In verse 71, he will save us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Um, I think one of the things that evangelical Christians like us have failed to appreciate is how much hatred we ought to expect from the world. Um, I've been reading John's gospel real slowly, and in chapter 16, uh, Jesus says, he dwells on this subject. He said, look, I'm telling you these things before they happen, so you won't fall away when they do happen. And he said, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too, because a servant is not greater than his master. And if I experienced hatred, you will experience hatred. Now this goes all the way back to Genesis 3 at verse 15 when God says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. The seed of the woman, the believers, and the seed of the serpent, non-believers. And, 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 and this enmity will endure. But now he's saying it's going to be salvation from the hand of all who hate us. Now, the the word hand in this context is also an image of power. Uh, I've got wimpy little hands. Uh, they're not very big and they're not very strong. Uh, there's a few parts of my body that used to be strong, not, not so much now, but my hands have never been really strong. My father, on the other hand, grew up on a farm and was an automobile mechanic for a while, and he had extraordinarily powerful hands, okay? Different hands, different people different strengths, but in this context, uh, it's, it's the hand of the Lord in verse 66, right? Who heard them and laid, um, excuse me, for, at the end of verse 66, for the hand of the Lord was with him. Here we're saying the hand of all who hate us. So you got the hand of those who hate us and the hand of the Lord. Well, guess which hand's the strongest? This is not rocket science, is it? <laughs> no. The hand of the Lord is the powerful hand. It's another image of God's power, just like the horn of salvation is also a, an image of His power. And God, of course, is the great power. He is the Almighty One, the Omnipotent One. And He will use that power in verse 72 and following to show them mercy, the mercy that was promised to their fathers, to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, so God made promises hundreds and hundreds of years before, about 17 centuries before 
Abraham's about 1700 B.C., give or take a few years. And those promises are still in effect. They're still true. They're still great to remember if you're a person of God. And they are things that put God, self-done of course, under obligation to come and bless and rescue His people. What will it cost God to be true to His promises? What will it cost God? I want to take you back in your mind, or if you want to open your Bible, to Genesis 15. It's a passage I mentioned last week during the baptism. Um, a, A passage where God is making covenant commitments to Abraham and to his descendants. And it's the covenant that I think is referred to here, to remember his covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And so God in in Genesis 15 says to Abraham that he's going to make Abraham's name great. Uh, He's going to make him the father of many nations. And uh, he tells Abraham at one point, said, bring a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon, And he brought him all these, and he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. If this was a movie today, of course, this would be badly rated, right? He did not cut the birds in half, but he cut the female goat, and he cut the heifer, um, and he cut the ram. And And he laid them out, half here, half here, half here, half here, half here, half here. Abraham goes into this deep sleep. And there's this smoking fire pot that swings up and down between the halves. What is God saying? You might first say something really strange, right? (laughs) Right? What's God saying? He's saying this. Before I fail to be true to my covenant, I will cut myself. I will destroy myself. What did he do to be true to his covenant? He put his boy on the cross. And he sacrificed them for you and me. What did it cost God to be true to his promises? The blood of his boy. The blood of his only begotten son. That is the oath that he promised. I will be a God to you. I will redeem you. I will save you. And if I have to do it, I will die to make it happen. They don't see all of this. Zechariah doesn't as he writes this. But we, with the completeness of the Bible and the revelation, the Holy Spirit to guide us, we see it. We marvel at it. Why would you do that, God? I love you. There's nothing else you can say except that he loves us. So he's going to be true to his promise. He's going to deliver us from the hand of our enemies. Why? Verse 74 to end, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What is it to serve? Uh, A couple of things at least. Well, we talk about what we're doing now is we're in a worship service. And... um, I remember the first time I ever thought about why do we call a 
a worship service, a worship service. Because one of the ways you serve God is by worshiping Him. It's not the only way. If you limit it to that and you think, well, I've served God, now I can go live like I want to the rest of the week except for this one hour and 15 minutes or so, right? But it's more than that. Uh, It's to serve Him in all our ways, in all our days. In everything we do, wherever we are, we die to self, we serve Him. And we're to serve Him, it tells us, without fear. What, what, What? Fear. Without fear of who or what. Well, I think it's twofold, at least. Again, I think it's without fear of our enemies, but I think it's also without fear of our God. That I won't be good enough. Of course you're not good enough. That's the reason Jesus had to die. Well, I'm afraid God's patience will wear out. He says in the gospel it won't. So we are redeemed. We are are visited. God brings his powerful hand and his horn of salvation so that we can serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Before his watching eye in moral purity as a distinct people. I don't have time to draw those out. God, in God's view, we're to do this without taking a day off. Serving God is not something you take a day off from. Why would you want to take a day off from God? If God is the source of our blessedness, if God is the source of our hope, if God is the source of everything good, every good and perfect gift from, comes from God... Why would you ever want to, quote, have a day off from God? Wouldn't make any sense, would it? Lastly, there's the role of John the Baptist in verses 76 and following. Oh, yeah, he does get around to talking about the boy that's just been born. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. What does a prophet do? Well, a prophet in... The Bible speaks for God. He reveals God and God's ways. Prophets can do two things. Uh, They can foretell. That's what we tend to major on. A prophet is someone that says things about the future. I, I, I almost use the word predict, but prophets in the biblical sense don't just predict uh, it's not a, it might happen, it might not happen. They tell us what's going to happen in the future. But they not only foretell, they foretell about the present and about God. And this John, the prophet of the Most High, will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, let me read a, 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 a text that comes out of the Old Testament too. From Mark's gospel, and I'll point out something about um, John and, and a group in Israel called the Essenes or the, the, the Dead Sea Scroll people. In Mark 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the, one of, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now at the end of the passage I read in Luke, 
It says, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Now, some of you may know that in the, in the text, there's a question about where do you put the comma? Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But you could have moved the comma and it would read this way. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying, comma, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so a lot of people took it that way and literally went out and lived in the wilderness along between Jerusalem and the Jordan River Valley to prepare the way of the Lord. John might have been among that group. He probably was. What does it mean to prepare his way? Well, you know the president has an advance team, right? If the president goes anyway, anywhere, the advance team shows up. And what do they do? They prepare the way of the president and they do deal with security issues and traffic flow issues and all kinds of things. Where's the nearest airport? I don't know all they do, but they, I know he does have an advance team, right? So John is the advance team for Jesus. Uh, he's going to be a little bit older. He's going to begin his ministry before Jesus begins his ministry. And he says... That, he will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. So he's going to prepare the people for that. He's going to tell the people of that. It, 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 when he says to give the knowledge of salvation to his people, uh, knowledge in this context is more than what we think of when we talk about knowledge. We think of knowledge as something we store in our brain like you might store on a computer hard drive and we can repeat it when the time comes. Uh, knowledge for uh, the, in, in this context, the biblical context, was a deeper, richer, uh, more full notion uh, that was, uh, had impact and effect. If somebody had knowledge, uh, they might uh, have also what we call wisdom but he's going to give them knowledge of forgiveness of their sins. That's how they're going to be saved. Not by the achievements of the law, not by keeping the law, but, but they're going to be saved by having their sins forgiven. And that's going to be done by the tender mercy of God. Mercy is undeserved help and undeserved kindness. Jerry Sage, the guy that wrote this book, uh, was captured by the Germans in North Africa. And he, he, he escaped. And he was captured um, in some other places, maybe Romania, and he escaped. And he was captured in Germany, and he was put in Stalaglu III, and he tried to escape. And if they had known he was OSS and not a flyer, they would have shot him on the spot. But he kept escaping. And for some reason, they didn't shoot him for repeated escape attempts. That's not tender mercy, though. That's mercy, but not tender mercy. Tender mercy is the kind of mercy, and the tender mercy is what's mentioned here. Tender mercy is the kind of mercy a mother has for her child. Tender mercy is the kind of mercy that uh, doesn't make you feel bad. Tender mercy is the kind of mercy that, that you want, that you long for, that people bless you when you... Give it to them. 
Friend, if you're going to receive Jesus rightly, listen carefully, please. If you're going to receive Jesus rightly or at all, you need to be prepared. You must know your sin and need. He had a baptism of repentance. We must know our sin and need. We must be hungry for help. Many, many, many people never make it to Christ because they never sense their need. They never sense their need. They can never come to admit that they have nothing good to offer to God. Of course, Jesus said, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Have I told you the story about my friend named Lemuel in, in, in um, Kentucky? Uh, I told him once, I said, Lemuel, the big part, difficulty is not getting people saved. It's getting people lost. So lost, they, they realize they need to be saved. He told me later, he said, I thought you were a nut when you told me that. But about 20 years later, he said, I see it. Yeah, people don't, don't see they need Jesus because they don't realize they're spiritually, morally bankrupt. I said, yeah, that's right. So John and Jesus came in fulfillment of promises from God. John to prepare the way and Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. They came as parcels from home. They came as letters to people in darkness. And God's promises are that way. And some of his parcels have already arrived. And others are on the way. God's prophets are like emails that say, your package has been shipped. It's on the way, but there's no date given when it's going to come. Or it's like the man that I read in this book, R.E. Williams, that oversaw the, the parcels that came, the post uh, and, and, and the postcards and the letters that came. But God ensures that they will be delivered by the death of His Son. All the promises will be delivered. There will be no porch pirates taking away the promises of God before they get into your hand and heart. They have guaranteed delivery and will arrive on time. All of them. They will not get lost on the way. But they all come, listen carefully, they all come signature required. What do you mean by that, Alan? They all require faith. To receive the promises of God, they require the signature of faith. And friends, now is the acceptable time to put your faith in Jesus if you never have. Now is the time to admit your moral bankruptcy if you never have. Now is the time to run up the flag, a white flag of surrender, and say, I have nothing to offer. I have no more power. I have no more hope than in Christ. Friends, we don't live in an era of instant communication, but we do have parcels and letters from God and this is one of those letters, and John was one of those parcels. But Jesus is the main parcel from heaven. He came years ago, and he's coming back. As a matter of fact, the, the coming, I won't preach it this year. I've got a sermon, a Christmas sermon about the two comings. The first coming makes absolutely no sense without the second coming. 
no sense at all. But the two comings, he came and he's coming back. So be ready, watch, receive him and wait in faith. And do what Zechariah did, rejoice too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message that's going to have its fulfillment, its full and final fulfillment in the defeat of our enemies when Jesus comes again. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came in the first instance, in the first time in humiliation. And we thank you that you're going to come the second time in glory. And you're going to defeat all of your and our enemies. We believe by faith you've gone away to make a place for us, to prepare a place for us. Indeed, that you wouldn't have told us that if, in, if you didn't in, intend to do it. And so heaven will be a prepared place. And we thank you for that, that promise, that hope that carries us along through the dark days here. And Father, many of this flock are in dark days. People have talked about the Boatlers today and... There are others for whom this Christmas seems a long way from what Christmas used to be and from what they hope for. Lord, convince us that what we hope for is real and worth it and help us to wait in faith till the final parcel is delivered, till you come again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.